I don't know if I should do this or not, but since you got into the cupcakes, Jerry, let me uh, say that uh, when we worship here at the Barclay Building, and it's the uh, uh, either service, the 815 or the 11, we don't pass an offering plate, but we just put our gifts on the tables on either side of the worship space. So if you are in the habit of doing that as a function of your worship to him, uh, do that. It's not that we need the money. You may need to uh, do that as an act of worship to the Lord. But we could use the money for him. Now, if you've been here the last uh, Advent weeks, four you know that we've been studying five different names of Jesus that are given to us in Matthew's gospel. And so tonight, we thought we'd just finish up that series with a fifth name, which is Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene. And it comes from Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Arch Elias was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And Joseph went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. You know, when you uh, preach a fair amount, you... um, If you take it seriously, you're always looking at life for illustrations. And you are always um, on the lookout when God seems to ordain an encounter. So last week, I'm with a man. He looks me in the eye and he says, you know, I couldn't get away from your question. And instantly I thought, what question? And maybe it was my vacant look. (laughs) Maybe it was a furrowed brow, but he bailed me out and he told me what my question was. He said, you asked, have you ever thought about trying to find your father? Now, he had told me that he had never met him, never seen him, never seen a picture of him. Years ago, when he was growing up, he asked his mother what the man's name was, and she said she couldn't remember. And he said that was good with him. And frankly, he said, I never really thought about it until you asked me a couple of weeks ago, have you ever thought about finding your father? And now I can't get away from it. Something that I had no desire to do, I now can't not do. He said, I know my mother was married at the time. She was working as a professional and she knew a man that she knew. And um, he was headed to the West Coast for a teaching position. And so they spent some time together and as a function of their union, he was the product. 
For more than 30 years of his life, he didn't need to know it. He knew what he needed to know. His mother loved him unconditionally. He was three months premature, and she loved him from the time she knew she was going to bear him. And his adoptive stepfather loved him too because he adopted him very early on. But now as a result of an innocent question, he was on a mission to find the identity of the man who gave him life. So he goes to the university and does some research. And he knows what department the man was in, and so he checks the registers and he finds out that between 30 and 40 years ago, there were a select number of people who taught in that department, and he narrowed it down and found a few names. And so he goes to his mother, and he runs the, number, the names by her and looking for a hit. And sure enough, she says, that's him. And so from this institution, she, he goes to Google, and he does a search. And he discovers not only the man's academic record, he understands and finds the man's criminal record. It seems that the man who gave him life is now doing a life sentence for, as a serial rapist. And he says to me as he, as he gulps, you know the worst part of it? I look just like him. Years ago, a man from Wisconsin was in the Navy, World War II. And he was shipped out to the South Pacific with three other men, and they were given one job, to occupy an island. It was about 100 acres, this island. And his job and the other guys was to make sure that no Japanese stepped foot on the island. That was no problem. In two and a half years, they didn't even see a Japanese person. All they saw was the supply ship every six weeks. He said, now on that island, there was nothing to do except to cuss and to spit and to play cards. And then he remembered in about two weeks that when he enlisted in the Navy and he shipped out, they gave him a Bible. Now, he had never read the Bible. He had no interest in the Bible. He fancied himself as an agnostic. But when you're on an island and it's boring you'll do anything. So he gets the Bible out of his duffel bag. He walks up this little rise in the island in the middle, away from everybody, under a palm tree. He sits down and begins to read. With no interruptions, he said by lunchtime, he had been through Leviticus. (laughs) By dinner, he was through Joshua. And within about five days, he finishes Revelation, then he starts again. And he said the third time through, when he gets to the Gospel of Matthew... He finds himself compelled to his knees where he asks Christ to be the Lord of his life. Now think of that. No church, no preacher, no evangelist, just the Holy Spirit in a Bible. After the war's over, he comes back to Madison, Wisconsin. He attends university on the GI Bill. He goes through in three years. He then goes to seminary for three years. 
And when he gets out, he takes a position with a large church in that town as the director of Christian, adult Christian education. The first day on the job, he goes to the senior minister and says, what curriculum do you use? And the guy says, we don't use any curriculum. He said, you got to write your own. The man said, I haven't even been in church. I wasn't raised in a church. I don't even know what curriculum is. He said, well, you better get to it. And so he leaves the minister, that senior minister's office, walks down to his office, closes the door, drops on his knees, and says, God, you've got to help me. As soon as he gets off his knees, he has a knock on the door. It's a bank president of a local bank and says, I hear you're going to write a Bible study. Do you need a quiet place? The bank's being closed for six weeks for remodeling. You can be in there. He goes into the bank. He spends a lot of time in the vault. And in 21 days, he has written arguably the finest survey of the Bible on the market even today, 60 years later. Today, that Bible study called the Bethel Bible Series is used by 47, in 47 nations by over 10,000 churches. Years ago, I had the privilege of meeting the man who wrote it, and I asked him a question, a question that was sort of burning. I said, in your opinion, who do you think in all of the Old Testament, is the clearest foreshadowing of Jesus. Now, I expected him to say Moses or David. You know what he said? Samson. Samson. I didn't discount it because, after all, he wrote the series. But I thought, how in the world could he pick Samson? And then years later, I came to recognize, because he knows what it means to call Jesus the Nazarene. I want to show you what I found. First, notice the meaning of the word Nazareth. Matthew says, And Joseph went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Now, for years, that verse has been used by liberals as an arrow to shoot a hole in the veracity of Scripture. They will say that is proof positive that the Bible's full of errors because there is no Old Testament prophet that says that the Messiah will live in Nazareth. And yet, 17 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. So what gives? Why would Matthew link Jesus' hometown to the Old Testament prophets? Now, that's been a question been asked for centuries. And one group of people answer, well, the root word of Nazareth is netzar, which means a sprout or a young shoot. And they say that that links Nazareth to the prophecy of Isaiah in 53, where in Isaiah 53 he says, the Messiah will be a shoot, a root, a young plant out of dry ground. So, maybe that's what Matthew means. Most people say, try again. So others say, no, there's another root word 
Nezer, which means branch. And that would tie Nazareth, meaning the place of the branch, to what Isaiah says in chapter 11 when he says, he will be a branch of the root of Jesse. People say that's weak. But you know, there is one other word, which is Nazar, which it gives us a much clearer link between Nazareth and the Old Testament. Nazar literally means to keep watch or to guard. You see, the town of Nazareth is 70 miles almost due north of Jerusalem. And, it, and it's located on a ridge, a mountain ridge called the Ridge of Nazareth. Now, it would make sense to put a town, Nazareth, on a ridge called Nazareth. And they say that from that ridge, you have a view of almost all of Israel. It's that high and that expansive. So, think of it. When Herod dies, the angel comes to Joseph, who's still in Egypt. And when the angel speaks to Joseph four times, it's always in a dream. Angel shows up with Mary, she's awake. It's a vision. But with Joseph, it's a dream. And the angel says, don't return to Jerusalem or Judea. Don't go south. Go north to Galilee. And so what does Joseph do? He goes north to Galilee. And he goes to this small mountain town. It had about 200 people, they think, at the time Jesus lived there. And there he makes a home for Mary and Jesus. You say, well, that's good history, but so what? To which Matthew would say, so what? You need to know that an angel came to another woman. 1,300 years before he came to Mary and then to Joseph. And this woman was, a son of, or was the wife of Manoah. And she lived in this little town called Zorah. And it was 70 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And the angel comes to her and says, You are unable to have a child. But I say to you, you will conceive. And you will bear a son. And you will raise him here. You know the interesting thing about that town? It's the same elevation. 70 miles southwest of Nazareth, you've got Zoar. And that is a place where you could have the same view of Israel. And in Judges 13, when you hear all about this woman and her son, Samson, God describes the view of Israel this way. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it's because of that view of them that the Lord says to Joseph and to the wife of Manoah, I'm sending a son who will come because of the condition of my people. Then second, notice the message. In Judges 13, we read that when the angel comes to this woman in Zorah, the first thing the angel does is, says to her, you are barren. I mean, you know, talk about rubbing it in. I mean, to be barren then was to be a huge disgrace. It was to be less than a person. And then the angel says, but you will have a child. 
You will conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb. In other words, what the angel is saying to her is, I want you from the birth of this child to consecrate him as a Nazarite. I want you to set him apart. The angel says, you're going to do it. You will set him apart to God. Now, the way you did that is you took a Nazarite vow. Normally, it was a person who was an adult taking a vow for a period of time. But this angel says to this mother, you're going to make this child a Nazarite from his birth, and he'll never waver from it. And there were three conditions. Don't let his hair get cut. Don't let wine get near his lips. And don't let him come in any contact with anything dead, animal or human being. And the angel's clear about this. The reason he's going to be a Nazarite is because the Lord has called him to deliver his people from the Philistines. Now, there's one Philistine almost everybody knows. It's Goliath. He's a big guy. He towered over everyone. And it, but it's interesting that the, the Philistine we know, Goliath, was massive. And yet, you know what Philistine literally means? One who crawls in the dust. You read the Bible in the Old Testament. You see everywhere the Philistines show up, they're always the emissaries of Satan. They're like the serpent that was cursed who crawls in the dust. So what the angel is saying to this woman is, your son, this one you will conceive late in life and you will deliver, he is destined to deliver my people from Satan. Now remember what the angel says to Mary and to Joseph. Mary will bear a son with no benefit of a husband, no benefit of, of a human father. And you'll call his name Jesus. There's no mention of consecrating him. There's no mention of them setting them aside, setting them apart. Why? Because that's not their job. It's God's job to do that. Remember what Luke says in chapter 4? Jesus is in the water of the Jordan praying. And the Holy Spirit, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends on him like in the form of a dove. And a voice calls from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And at that moment, he's consecrated. At that moment, God sets him apart. At that moment, he is endowed with the Spirit of God to go into ministry. And what happens? Immediately, according to Mark, the Holy Spirit drives him into the wilderness where he experiences the temptations of Satan. And every one of those three temptations, Jesus turns back. He defeats Satan in the wilderness. And then what's the next thing he does? He goes home to Nazareth. And he goes to the synagogue there. And he takes the scroll of Isaiah, chapter 61. And he begins to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favor of the Lord. That's what he says. Now, it's amazing. When you read that prophecy in Isaiah 61, you'll see that Jesus doesn't edit. He makes an edit. Because right before it says, and proclaim the favor of the Lord, what Isaiah has the Lord saying, what the Lord did say was, the coming day of vengeance. Jesus edits that out. There's no mention of judgment. Jesus is all about grace. And yet, when he sits down within minutes, and he says, today... This prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. 
Within minutes of that, those people in that synagogue run him out of town all the way to one of those cliffs on the ridge of Nazareth to push him over and kill him, and yet Jesus escapes from their midst. Now, that's the message. And then finally, notice the model. Think of this. In all of the Bible, there's only one man named Samson, and there's only one man named Jesus. They're both born through miraculous circumstances. They're both born by miraculous means. They're both born to humble, lowly, obscure mothers. They're both the product of divine promise. They're both born to deliver God's people from their bondage to Satan. Both are consecrated. In Samson's case, it's his mother who does it. In Jesus' case, it's his heavenly father who does it. Both grow in the power of the Holy Spirit. Both are tempted. Both are betrayed. Both exert supernatural power. And yet both are willing to die with outstretched arms. But there's one dramatic difference between the two of them. When Samson dies... He prays to God and he says, give me strength that I may destroy my enemies. And when he pushes those pillars of that pagan temple, the Bible says 3,000 Philistines die. But when Jesus stretches out his hands and he's ready to die, When he prays, he doesn't pray that God destroys his enemies, but that God would forgive them and save them. Somebody has said, the reason Jesus refers to, the reason Jesus is referred to as Jesus of Nazareth 17 times in the New Testament is so that you and I might come to discover the true identity of our true Father. You see, you don't have to go to a university and do the research. You don't have to track him down on Google. All you have to do is look at Nazareth and look at Calvary and see that the reason he came was to find you. He loves you more than you love you. You don't have to find him. He's found you. And if you know him, it's because he's found you. Now, I don't know what you would have said to my dear friend. What would you have said to him? When he says through tears, you know the worst part? I look like him. I don't really know what I would have said in the natural. It doesn't happen very often, but instantly... I felt like the Lord told me to say this to him. Before I fashioned the world, I knew you. I knew exactly where you'd be born. I knew exactly how you'd be born. I knew exactly how to deliver you from the schemes and the power of the devil. I knew exactly how to rescue your life as a testimony to my grace. I knew exactly how to show you that I am your true father. And you know something? Regardless of your parentage, 
that's true for you too. I mean, where do we get the idea that God only deals with good people? There aren't any. Where do we get the idea that God only deals in the best of circumstances? Where do we get the idea that God pours out His grace to people who really don't need it? You see, if there's anything to be learned from the story of the Nazarite and the Nazarene, it's this. Without sin, without brokenness, there is no grace. Of all the names of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, there is no name that more clearly demonstrates that it's only his grace that can free us. It's only his grace that can cause somebody to say to you, man, Are you looking more and more like your father? You see, without Jesus of Nazareth, we don't just look like a prisoner. We are one. It's only the Nazarene who can free us. And when he frees us, he makes us look just like couple hours, it's Christmas. Can you think of a better time to think about Him? He loves you more than you know. Think about it.